Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Here again the words of our Lord as he says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So far our text. The scribes and the Pharisees. Those were the righteous dudes of Jesus' day. They were the good ones. They were the ones who supposedly took the word of God seriously. The Pharisees strove for righteousness. They ordered their lives around the law of God. They observed the ceremonial law of God with zeal. They washed obsessively to avoid consuming anything unclean. They ate only the right foods. They rested on the Sabbath. They fasted. They attended synagogue. They kept the prayers. They didn't defile themselves in any way. They had from their Talmudic tradition 613 laws, 365 negative, thou shalt not, and 248 positive, thou shalt, commandments. And they were to build a hedge around themselves, hedge around the law of Moses, so that they could not dare to do anything against the law given to God's people at Mount Sinai. Yet today, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says this right after speaking his Beatitudes. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. To hunger and thirst for something, that means it's not already in you. It's not already part of you. You need it. You have to receive it in some way outside of yourselves. I hunger for food. What do I have to do? I have to eat. I thirst for water. What do I have to do? I have to drink. I need to have something that I do not have that is not part of me to be given to me. And that was the problem with the Pharisees. See, they had no hunger for righteousness. They believed they were righteous on their own. They had their code that they lived their lives by. They assumed that it would make them righteous. But it was like a shortcut. With their shortcut, they, were, they thought they were fulfilling the law of God. They thought they had all the righteousness. But you see, their 613 laws sound like a very complicated way of keeping the law. It sounded like a very complicated way of making things good. It sounded difficult. It sounded like hard work. It sounded like something you could be proud of if you did it. But in reality, it just made things simple. You just kept the rules. It was an entirely outward set of behaviors. The rules were as simple as don't spit on the ground during the Sabbath because that would be watering the earth and watering the earth was work. Instead, you can spit on a rock. 
It was all about outwardness, outward behavior, outward action. It didn't concern the heart. It didn't concern faith. It didn't concern love for God or for neighbor. It was simply a list of rules and behaviors that one kept in order to appear righteous. It had made the righteousness of God into a game, a game that you could get good enough with, with practice. And having plenty of practice, the Pharisees seemed really good at it. They seemed to be the most righteous. There are so many in the world that see righteousness as that sort of game. It's more about appearances than it is about faith. It's about convincing everyone else that, hey, you're good. You're a good person. You're a good guy. You should be liked and respected. And so many people love to play the game. We see this sort of thing out in the world today as righteousness is played out with selective outrage. Whoever's the most outraged by a public transgression of another person claims to be the most righteous. We see that all over the news as pundits appear on their favorite cable news channels and bemoan how wicked those other people are. They're on the side of the angels, of course. See, we live in a world and a culture where righteousness is determined by how different I am from those people over there. And so long as I'm not a Democrat or so long as I'm not one of those gender benders or so long as I'm not one of those people, I'm better than them, I'm righteous. And these become little shortcuts to goodness and righteousness before the world. I measure my righteousness according to how I'm not like the rest of them. We do this sort of thing in church, too. We play the game of how can I balance things out and say, hey, I'm, I'm doing better than the rest. So long as I can be better than someone else with my church attendance and participation, then I'm doing fine. So, hey, I went to church twice last year, uh, or I went to church twice last month, and that's better than most people. I can stay home this week. Or I went to a funeral this week, and that's sort of like going to church, so I don't need to go this week. Or I volunteered this week, I gave money, or I talked to pastor on the phone. I've done enough. It's okay. As long as I check my boxes and I do those little bitty things that satisfy my own conscience, then I really don't need the word of God and the body and blood of Jesus. Do we really realize how absurd that all sounds? I don't really need it this week. The only time in your life you'll not need the body and blood of Christ, the word of God, the proclamation of God's holy absolution for you, will be when you have completed your sanctification on this earth. And that happens when you die. There, that's when your flesh is finally put to its end. That is the day you can say you no longer need the word of God preached to you or the body of blood fed to you because you'll see it face to face. That will be the day when you no longer need the forgiveness of sins. But even then, you'll still need Jesus. See, our consciences can become deluded and confused so that we end up playing the same game as the Pharisees over and over again. If I can check my boxes, if I can do the outward things, I can call myself righteous. And that makes us the same the exact same thing that Jesus accused the Pharisees of being. That is hypocrites. Jesus says in Matthew, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. 
For you neither enter yourselves, nor you allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child as head as your hell as yourself. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of law, justice, and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out the gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. And so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He calls the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites. In the Greek, that's just an old word that means play actor. They were playing at righteousness without ever actually achieving it. Jesus is calling us to a righteousness that is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not like children playing house. It is not a righteousness that is based on outward appearances. It does not come from works of the law God is not blind to our hearts. Even if we could delude the whole world with our righteous actions, God could see through every bit of it. He knows the hearts of men are filled with sin. As Jesus says, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And we are all subject to those failures and shortcomings. The old sinful flesh that dwells within us loves these things and wants nothing more than to cling to them. See, we can play the game of righteousness all that we want. We cannot escape our sinful hearts. We need a righteousness that is not our own. We need a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, one that comes from outside of us, not from inside, but from outside. We need the righteousness of Christ that is received by faith alone. As St. Paul writes, we hold that one is justified or made righteous by faith, apart from works of the law. The righteousness of the Pharisees amounts to nothing. The Pharisees were deceiving themselves, and, and we do too sometimes. They made the law of God smaller and weaker so that they could play the game of righteousness. And Jesus condemned them for it. Their study and their zeal for the law should have revealed one thing to them above all others. They were sinners, and they needed a Savior. Sadly, when their Savior came, their self-righteousness did not permit them to receive him because they could not publicly say they were unrighteous and they needed forgiveness. The law should have accused their hearts so that they desired nothing other than the mercy of Jesus. Instead, they manipulated it so that they spurned his mercy, and they rejected him. But Jesus is exactly who they needed. Jesus came to give them a righteousness that was greater than their own. As St. Peter says, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, and by his wounds we have been healed. The sinless one dies for sinners. St. Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see where true godly righteousness is given? It's not in the game of the Pharisees that we all love to play. It's not found in the appearance of righteousness, nor in the delusion of our consciences. It's found in Jesus. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to hunger and thirst for Jesus. And Jesus is received in one way. By faith that trusts he is the Son of God who has died for our sin. It is Jesus Jesus and only Jesus. That is the only righteousness that avails to anything. Our hearts are too sinful to find righteousness in any other place. The actual law of God that accuses sinners did its work on the Pharisees. See, the law of God in the eyes of the Pharisees, it was a monster that crushed them by exposing their sins. And so what did the Pharisees try to do? They tried to tame it. They tried to take the monster of the law and make it into a puppy. Something that they could manipulate. Something that they could tame. Something that they could control. And they failed. The law of God is not a puppy that we can train and tame and tell what to do. It is the immutable and perfect will of our Creator. And it is the clear evidence that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet that same law, it isn't evil either. Jesus says he does not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus comes to keep it perfectly. He's righteous. He says, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. See, Jesus comes to enact the will of his Father for all creation. He comes to be the perfect man. He comes to do what Adam and every other person failed to do, as we just sang about in our sermon hymn. He comes to fulfill the law, and that means that Jesus loves his neighbor perfectly. He submits to his Father perfectly. He does all of these things in perfect love. Perfect love for his Father. Perfect love towards us. Jesus brings the perfect love to perfect fulfillment as he suffers as the perfect living sacrifice. The perfectly righteous one suffers the death for imperfect sinners. He dies to self, perfectly giving himself for us on the cross. And he is the fulfillment of all righteousness as he dies to save sinners. He gives that fulfillment of the law to us as a gift. As he suffers and dies, we give him our sin. That sin dies with him. There's an exchange of things that go on as we stand before Christ in faith. In his death, we are purchased in one. We are brought into the kingdom of heaven with the death of Jesus. And that is where righteousness is found. And the wonder of it all is that we are called to the righteousness through the word and through our baptism. 
It is a gift that is given to us. St. Paul talks about this in the epistle lesson today. He says, Do you not know that all of you have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? God has declared you righteous. Through the death of his son. You are dead to sin. It doesn't own you. It doesn't rule you. In the sight of God, sin has no power over you, no lordship, no victory. You have the righteousness of Christ that is received by faith. And since no since sin no longer rules you, you're free to delight in the will of God. Not as the Pharisee, but as a forgiven sinner. The Pharisees had to play their game in order to tame the monster of God's law because it was out to get them. But that's not you. Because you don't have to play a game at being righteous. You are free. You are a sinner who is forgiven. You are righteous in the eyes of your almighty God. God has said so. In the waters of holy baptism, he declares the sinner dead and the son alive. No, you are free to live in righteousness. You are free to pursue the law of God in its fullness under the grace of Christ. It's not a monster that needs to be tamed, but it's a gift that you are free to pursue, to delight in, and to keep in your life as a child of God. Certainly not without the weakness and hindrance of our old sinful flesh, the attacks of the devil. Those things come. But those things are daily and ultimately defeated. They are being destroyed under the power of the mercy of Christ. Daily they are put to death before us as we dwell in the forgiveness of sins. Daily as we live in repentance before our gracious Savior, that sin in you is taken away. That hatred for the law, that failure to keep it, that failure to understand it, it is taken away from you in the forgiveness of sins that you have in Christ. You emerge from the waters of your baptism as new creations who have been remade in the image of Jesus. That is who you are as the child of God. And that is the difference between a Pharisee and a Christian. The Pharisee wanted everyone to believe that their righteousness came from them. They wanted to show how their discipline, their effort, and their ability to play the game made them better than everyone else. That is not what the Christian does. We as Christians do not play games. The Christian simply confesses his sins and rests in the mercy of Christ. The Christian delights in the law of God even when it unveils our sin and drives us to the feet of the cross of Jesus. Christians never boast of any righteousness of their own, but only in Christ and his righteousness. The Christian clings to and trusts in Jesus because he knows that there is nothing else. There is no righteousness to be found in any other place. 
The Christians simply trust in the promise of baptism and the declaration of the Holy Word and the gift of the Lord's Supper because he knows that is where true righteousness is given for his poor sinful sake. It is the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees completely. So, dear friends in Christ, we trust in Jesus. Jesus is your righteousness. Here, Jesus reminds us that no one is righteous according to his own love or his own good works. And he turns us back to our helpless state as we stand before God. He helps us to see that the gospel alone is what saves that Jesus is the only righteousness that avails to eternal life. All other works, they are filthy rags. It is Jesus and only Jesus who saves. Our, our inclusion in the kingdom of God is a gift of God's love. And Jesus would never leave us to the hypocrisy or the play-acting of our own outward righteousness. Because that will fail us. Rather, he calls us to cling to him to his righteousness, to his goodness. He calls us to follow after him so that we can only depend upon him as we must flee to him each and every day. We flee to his gifts, we flee to his love as he offers it here and today as our sins are forgiven. He offers it every day as we live in his means of grace and as we have the forgiveness of the gospel of Jesus, we live in true Christian love. We find delight in the law of God. We pursue the law of God with zeal and joy. And we know that the law of God is not a burden, but a gift that reveals the will of our God and Savior. And even as it accuses us, we rejoice. And in it, we flee to the gift of forgiveness. Let's pray. If your beloved Son, O God, had not to earth descended and in our mortal flesh and blood had not since power ended, then this poor wretched soul of mine in hell eternally would pine because of my transgression. All righteousness by works is vain, the law brings condemnation, true righteousness by faith I gain, Christ's work is my salvation. His death, that perfect sacrifice, has paid the all-sufficient price, in him my hope is anchored. My guilt, O Father, you have laid on Christ, your Son, my Savior. Lord Jesus, you my debt have paid and gained for me God's favor. O Holy Spirit, fount of grace, the good in me to you I trace. and faith and hope preserve me. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in true faith to life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen.